This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach, heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and I can't tell you what an honor it is to have Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar with us today. This is an interview I've been looking forward to for a very long time. But before we meet him, let me tell you a little bit more about our esteemed guest. Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar is an internationally renowned teacher and author in the fields of happiness and leadership. After graduating from Harvard University with a BA in philosophy and psychology and a PhD in organizational behavior, Dr. Tull taught two of the most popular courses ever in Harvard's history, positive psychology and the psychology of leadership. He then taught happiness studies at Columbia University, and he's also the creator of the world's first master's degree in happiness studies. A prolific writer, Dr. Tell's books have been have appeared on bestseller lists all over the world and have been translated into more than 30 languages. I have to share some of these titles with you because it all began for me with the book Happier. That's that beautiful yellow book with the red writing, Happier, Learn the Secrets to Daily Joy and Lasting Fulfillment, which has been a New York Times bestseller. And Martin Seligman, the father of positive psychology, called the book the backbone of the most popular course at Harvard. Many books have followed, including most recently, Happier No Matter What, Cultivating Hope, Resilience, and Purpose in Hard Times. That was just published in 2021. Happiness Studies, an Introduction, and Shortcuts to Happiness, Life-Changing Lessons from My Barber. I encourage you to check them all out at Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar's website, which again, we will give to you at the end of the show. He even authored two children's books on happiness and believes that happiness should be taught from kindergarten age to 100 years old. Dr. Ben Shahar consults and lectures to executives in multinational corporations, educational institutions, and the general public. Topics, of course, include happiness, self-esteem, which is what his thesis was on, resilience, goal setting, mindfulness, leadership, and education. Dr. Ben Shahar is also the co-founder of the Happiness Studies Academy, as well as being the creator and instructor of the Certificate in Happiness Studies and the Happier School Programs. Don't these programs sound amazing? I want to take this master's. I'm going to talk to you about that after. He is also an avid sportsman and a certified yoga instructor whose work bridges Eastern and Western traditions, ancient wisdom and modern technology, science and art. This episode is timely because Canada was just ranked the 13th happiest country in the World Happiness Report. And Israel, where Tal Ben-Shahar was born, was ranked fourth. And for those who are interested, number one was Finland. I'm so excited to learn about how we all can become happier today with our revered guest, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, longest intro in the history of the world. Welcome to Finding Your Bliss. Thank you, Judy. It's so good to be here. Dr. Tal, I wonder if you could take us back to when you were 16 years old. And you won the Israeli National Squash Championship. And just to let people know, for squash is a very intensely hard game. I want to just tell you all, it's tennis times a thousand. After five years of very intense training, you were elated and supremely happy when you won. It was a huge triumph for you. 
You celebrated with family and friends feeling ecstatic and happier than you'd ever felt before. You held on to it. And after a whole night of celebration, the next morning you sank. The buzz was gone. And even though you won, the loss for you, I believe, was the knowledge that even though you won an international championship, it didn't automatically bring you the long lasting happiness you were seeking. Can you tell us what you went through when you realized that an external accomplishment, even one as grand as this one, ultimately wasn't making you happy? And can you paint us a picture of how after that night, you became obsessed with the answer to a single question? How can I find lasting happiness? Well, so, you know, Judy, you're taking me back, you know, almost 40 years. And uh, the five years leading to the tournament were, um, I wouldn't say they were a miserable time, but they were certainly an unhappy time because, um, you know, day in and day out, I would feel the stress of practice. Uh, it would become much more intense during tournament. Just in general, I was not leading a, a happy life, but I had hope. And the hope was that when I win the tournament, the national championships, then I'll be happy. Then all the, you know, the pain would lead to the ultimate gain when all my, uh, my questions would be answered, when all the unhappiness would turn to happiness. And it happened and it lasted for about, you know, four or five hours. And then right after I went back to where I was before. And you can imagine what, what I went through then, because first of all, I was baffled. I was lost. Mm-hmm. Because everything that I believed in was just shattered. Because I truly believe that the answer to my unhappiness was going to come in that form of of success, of that achievement, and it didn't. And it was then that 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 was the first time where I where where I really started to think, well, something's not working here. No, my model of happiness, which I inherited for many people, you know, from the elders of our of our society, from people around me, from teachers, the belief that success will lead to happiness, I realized was flawed. Yes, yes. And and just to let people know more about your fascinating background, you were in the Israeli army for three years doing your military service. And then later you earned your PhD, this is heady stuff, at Harvard, worked for two years in Singapore as an organizational behaviorist, studied education for a year in England, all the while touring the world, playing professional squash until an injury prevented you from continuing at this world-class level. But just to go to Harvard for a moment where it all began, it must have been such a culture shock to suddenly be catapulted into the iviest of Ivy League schools, Harvard University, Cambridge, Massachusetts, after spending three years in the army. And I love the story about how some of your fellow students at Harvard would complain about the food at the university. And you had to laugh because where you had been, you felt like you were in, this was matter from heaven all of a sudden, right? And so what was that culture shock for you? And what was going through your mind at the time when you arrived at Harvard University, the creme de la creme? So, you know, first of all, overall, my, my experience there, and both as a gra- an undergraduate and as a graduate student, overall was wonderful. However, it didn't start wonderful because my expectation, so I'd served three years in the military and, you know, I wasn't happy there. I think there are not too many people who are happy doing military service, but I had to do it. And then I said to myself, okay, now I'm free again, you know, free at last. And uh, here I get to go to uh, this most wonderful place that I'd only heard about and seen in the movies. And again, I fell into the same trap, Judy, because just the trap that I experienced six years earlier when I thought winning the national championships 
that will make me happy. I actually once again believed, okay, getting into Harvard, going to Harvard, now I'll be happy. Yes, and I've arrived. I've arrived, exactly. And then very quickly, I became unhappy again. And once again, baffled, distraught, lost. And for the first year and a half, so halfway through my, my, my sophomore, my second year in college, I was studying computer science. Why? Because, you know, I'd always been good at you know, mathematics and the sciences. And, you know, my dad's an engineer. My mom's a microbiologist. Uh, it was, you know, clear that I would go into the sciences as well because I was mm-hmm. good at it. And that's where I mm-hmm. started. But then after a year and a half, realizing, look, I'm in this, you know, heaven on earth, as you pointed out, you know, being served mana from the sky every day, <laughs> loving all the particulars, and yet on the whole, being very unhappy. And once again, it didn't make sense to me. And that's when I really changed course. So just one morning I got up, went to my academic advisor and told her, I'm switching. I'm switching majors. <laughs> and she asked me uh, what to. And I said, well, I'm, I'm leaving computer science, moving over to philosophy and psychology. And she said, why? And I said, because I have two questions. And the two questions are, first, why aren't I happy? Second, how can I become happier? And these became the defining questions of my undergraduate degree, as well as my graduate degrees and later my teaching. Absolutely. And you started maintaining this fascination with the science of happiness, studying some of the great thinkers of our time, Confucius, Lao Tzu, Aristotle, Frederick Nietzsche, Plato, and more. And I think you even noticed at the time that a lot of this was actually making you happier. As you studied these great thought leaders and philosophers, you were becoming happier And you realized ultimately that you wanted to share what you learned. And positive psychology was a course that got you motivated to explore this even further. And I love the way you describe positive psychology. So I don't want to say it. I want want to ask you what it is, positive psychology, and why it's so important. Yeah, so positive psychology, which officially as a field was uh, created by Professor Marty Seligman in 1998, is essentially looking at the full part of the glass. So traditional psychology would usually ask us, what is not working? Now I go to a therapist's office, you know, what's the problem? What do you want to improve in your life? Or a couple's counselor would ask my partner and me, what's not going well in your relationship? Or an organizational Mm -hmm. consultant, a traditional organizational consultant would look at what is not working in the organization, in the team, the weaknesses. Now, positive Mm -hmm. psychology comes along and changes all this. It changes the questions. Instead of asking what's wrong, what's not working, it asks what is right, what is working, what's going well in your life, what are your strengths (laughs) as a manager, as a leader, what's Mm -hmm. uh, flourishing within your relationship. It's not perfect. Nothing is. But what's working there? Let's start there and build on that. And that's a radical departure from traditional psychology with remarkable implications. Because what we know today, because there's a lot of research on it, we know that when we start by focusing on what is working, not ignoring the weaknesses or problems or things that are not, but focusing primarily on what is working, we um, are much more likely to grow, to learn, to flourish. Absolutely. And you have a brilliant acronym called SPIRE that we'll get to in just a moment. But I just want to say that I love that you became obsessed with how to find lasting happiness because tell I'm also compelled so much in a slightly different way 
to help people find their bliss as a life coach. And before we go any further, I just wanted to ask you about something I read in Sean Mishore's book. I don't know if you're familiar with it, The Bliss Experiment, where he talks about that continuum of happiness, starting from numbing to pleasure, to everyday happiness, and finally to mining, digging, digging deep as, as one would mine for gold or diamonds for deep happiness, purpose, enlightenment, dharma, and bliss. And as a life coach, I work with people to help them mine for this purpose, for their calling. And I really believe that bliss is when you do connect deeply to your purpose on this planet. So where does purpose fit into your worldview of happiness and beyond? Yeah. So of course, it's a very important element of happiness. You see, there is a lot of misunderstanding around what a happiness is, or more generally, what a happy life is. So, you know, people say, oh, you know, I was so happy on the beach doing nothing or, you know, oh, I'm having this ice cream. I'm happy. No, you're experiencing pleasure at that moment, certainly, Mm -hmm. but that's not happiness. Happiness goes much broader than that, at least according to my definition. And part of happiness is having a sense of meaning and purpose. And that leads, as you pointed out, to a much deeper sense of well-being or what I call whole being, because it doesn't just depend on fleeting emotions because emotions are temporary. We have, you know, our ups and downs 10 times a day. But when you have a deep sense of purpose, something that matters to you, well, that leads to a much deeper, more lasting and more stable sense of well-being. And and couldn't you also argue that when you're looking for happiness externally, like, oh, I got that promotion, I got that boyfriend, I got that, whatever it is, it's external. It could go. I, I won something, something great happened. I won that, that award, that Oscar, and then it's gone the next day. Whereas when you're mining for your purpose, your calling, your why in that deep place, and it's not easy to find. And I know this as a coach, people say, I don't know what my purpose is. And I think about Joseph Campbell talking about follow your bliss, but there's a big abyss between following it and finding it. And so my job as a coach is to help people find it. And I'm sorry to go through this whole thing, but I'm just wondering what you think is the biggest impediment mm. for most people. What gets in the way of us finding it, following it, living it, even searching for it? And why aren't we just happier? Mm. So Judy, I think you, you you answered this question in your question when you, when you <laughs> talked about people's um, belief, false belief, illusion, that when they arrive, when they get to a certain place, and that place could be, you know, more money or a certain university or a certain workplace or a partner or, you know, or a house, they believe that when they will get there, then they'll be happy. And I've come to call this illusion, the arrival fallacy. (laughs) And, um, this is what it would look like in its extreme and yet, unfortunately, realistic form. So ima- imagine this. Imagine you know, a person goes to Hollywood because he has a dream of becoming a movie star. And um, you know, the, the, the beginning is hard, but that's, that's expected. So he's weighing tables. You know, he's unhappy doing it. It's not what, what he wanted to do. But he says to himself, when I get there, then I'll be happy. When I become that star, yes. the, the, a star, then I'll be happy. And, you know, a year goes by, five years go by. And after 10 years, he finally gets his break. And he's in, you know, he has an audition. He's invited back. You know, he plays in a movie and becomes an overnight sensation. Everything changes for him. Suddenly he has more money than he knows what to do with. He buys, you know, his, his dream car or cars, a house in, you know, Beverly Hills. 
he's suddenly becoming so much more desired by people all over the world. He can have any, you know, man or woman he wants, basically. (laughs) He's ecstatic. He said, it was all worth it. I'm finally happy. I've arrived. And then a month goes by, three months, a year goes by, and he goes back to where he was before in terms of his happiness level, because we know that extrinsic, external success only leads to a temporary high. So he goes back to where he was before, unhappy with one very big difference. He is no longer sustained by the illusion that when he makes it, then he'll be happy. So he has arrived there, but he realizes that there is no there there. And then what happens is that he experiences the abyss. Why? Because he no longer has hope that once he makes it, then he'll be happy. You know, the difference between sadness and depression is that depression is sadness without hope. And right now he's hopeless. And he realized that he cannot find, or he believes that he cannot find happiness in reality. So he looks for it outside of reality. Now, what's outside of reality? Take your pick. Could be alcohol. It could be through drugs to try to exit reality or the ultimate exit, which is, of course, suicide. And this is why we see so much alcoholism or drug addiction or suicide among the very rich, famous, successful. And we look at them and we we can't believe they did that or are doing that because they have everything, everything that we ever wanted, everything that they ever wanted. But why? Because the barrier to their happiness, as well as to ours, is the misunderstanding, misperception, mistake that arriving, achieving, conquering a certain milestone, peak of a mountain, a goal, an objective, is what will make us happy. It won't. At best, it will lead to a temporary high. In, in your latest book, your 2021 Happier No Matter What, you do talk about service though. And I'm, and I, I, we were on a TV show together recently and I tried to say this and I didn't get a chance, but I just believe that when we are utilizing our unique talents and gifts and capabilities in service to others in order to make the world a better place, we can't help but be happy ourselves. We're making others happy using our talents and gifts as you do to make the world a better place. So is service one of the keys to that deeper, long-lasting happiness? Yeah, you know, there is so much benefit to the um, person who gives, who's generous, that I very often think that there is no more selfish act than a generous act. (laughs) Because there are perhaps no better ways to increase our own levels of happiness than by helping others become happier or contributing in some way to others. And, you know, many people say, oh, but if you contribute to others and you feel good about yourself, well, th- that's not really a good deed. Well, they're, they're basically um, citing <laughs> Immanuel Kant when they're saying that, who wrote exactly that, you know, a few, few hundred years ago. The thing, though, yes. is that rather than fighting our inclination and saying that it's immoral or amoral to enjoy <laughs> generosity and giving, we need to celebrate it to celebrate our nation. How wonderful it is that we're so constituted that when we contribute to others, we're indirectly contributing to ourselves. Isn't nature brilliant or God or or for whatever reason we were created in the way we were created? There's a word that someone sent to me yesterday, uh, Tal, that really resonated with me. It's the German word for joy. And the term is Freudenfreude, the antithesis of Schadenfreude, 
And I think it means being happy for someone else's joy or success. And now science is also suggesting that finding joy in someone else's fortune doesn't just make you a better person, but it actually has a tangible impact on your own mental health. So I was thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could all experience Freud and Freuda for everyone? Wouldn't that make make everyone happier? Uh, It it certainly would. I would just like to uh, add to this. It would be a wonderful thing. And of course, when, when, when it happens, we feel better about ourselves as we do about others. And yet sometimes we feel envy and jealousy mm-hmm. and schadenfreude. And these are all natural <laughs> human emotions. And it's important to accept and embrace these as natural because um, setting the bar too high and saying, I only want to experience joy in the joy of others. I always want to be loving and caring and compassionate. Yeah, that's a nice ideal, unrealistic for most, if not all, mere mortals. And, you know, you talked earlier, Judy, about the barriers to happiness, and one of them being the arrival fallacy. Another barrier to happiness is the expectation or the belief that we can be happy all the time, or that we can be joyful all the time, or loving, or compassionate, or kind. As human beings, we fluctuate. We're imperfect beings. And the sooner we can embrace that imperfection, the better it is for our happiness as well as for others. You said there's only two types of people, maybe other than a yogi, I don't know, maybe yogis experience bliss 24 seven, I don't know, enlightenment, but two basic kinds of people that are not happy all the time. And who are they? Yeah, it's the psychopaths and the dead. These are the only two people who do not experience painful emotions, psychopaths and dead. So, you know, if you experience painful emotions, good sign. You're not a psychopath and you're alive. I'd love to get into your brilliant acronym called SPIRE that represents the five elements that are important for happiness, which stands for spiritual wellness, physical wellness, intellectual wellness, relational and emotional wellness. Can you tell us more about these five elements that you believe are integral to happiness as a whole? Don't answer that just yet. We're going to go on a short commercial break. When we come back, more with Science of Happiness lecturer and author, and Happiness Studies Academy co-founder, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And I'm here with internationally renowned teacher and author in the fields of happiness and leadership, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. And before the break, Tal, I was asking you about the five elements of your acronym, SPIRE. Can you tell us more? So, you know, when you look at happiness, you need to look at it on three levels, the universal, the cultural, and the personal. And when you look at the universal 
elements of happiness. What you find throughout, and again, I, I didn't make the spire model up. You find it in Aristotle, you find it in Lao Tzu, you find it in Marianne Evans, you find it in Helen Keller. Hmm. And mm-hmm. I simply integrated what a lot of other people said. And, and one of my hobbies is creating acronyms. So I created an acronym. But the ideas have been around there, you know, for, for, for thousands of years and they're universal. So these are the five spire elements. The first element of happiness is spiritual well-being. Uh, the S of spire, spiritual well-being. We can, of course, find it through religion, you know, church or mosque or temple. However, we can also find it in purpose. We can also find it in a sense of meaning in our life. We can also find it in the present, in the here and now, by being mindful and aware. So these are some places where we can find spiritual well-being. The P of spire, physical well-being, well, that's about uh, physical exercise, for example. You know that there is research showing that regular physical exercise has the same effect on our psychological well-being as our most powerful psychiatric medication. It releases norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, the feel-good chemicals in the brain. So physical exercise, nutrition, of course, matters a great deal for our well-being. You know, if we eat processed food and and, and sugar, that's going to affect our mood. If we make small changes in our diet, eat a little bit more healthfully, eat, uh, you know, a little bit, you know, maybe more uh, more nuts or or more (laughs) fish. Blueberries. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, blueberries. Uh, blueberries, absolutely. Uh, small changes yeah. in, in moderation, yeah. which is you know a rare characteristic trait in our modern world. Uh, certainly in the West, where there is uh, uh, abundance in many places, if we can make these small changes, what a difference that would make to not just our physical health, also to our mental health. Then um, a recovery, rest is is important. You know, it, it's oh. God needed a day off. So do we. <laughs> so that's the, um, that's the peak. Can you tell that to my husband? <laughs> Can you tell that to my husband? He's a brilliant fertility doctor who actually works seven days a week. But I think it's so important you talk about this recovery and rest. Yeah. So important. It's, it's critical, again, not just for physical health, also for mental health and also for how creative and productive we are. So that's physical well-being, the P of spire, the I of spire, intellectual well-being. You know, Judy, one of my favorite studies came out quite recently shows that people who are curious, who ask questions, who are lifelong learners, actually live longer. So you know the saying, curiosity kills the cat? Well, it may kill the cat. It helps us humans live longer. (laughs) Curiosity contributes to our overall uh, well-being. So learning, you know, it could be watching uh, online lectures or or reading Mm -hmm. on an ongoing basis or taking a course. There's, there's so much value to that. So that's intellectual well-being. Then there's relational well-being. Number one predictor of happiness. Quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. This is also where under relational well-being, that's where also generosity and kindness, which we spoke about, that's where it falls. There's no, um, no more important element of happiness than the interpersonal one. And finally, the E of Spire, emotional well-being. Emotional well-being is about first and foremost embracing and accepting painful emotions Mm -hmm. like envy, like anger, like anxiety. And again, as long as we're alive and we're not 
psychopaths, then we'll have these emotions. Better embrace them. You know, there's a beautiful poem by Rumi 800, 900 years ago called The Guest House. And in it, Rumi writes about how we need to welcome, embrace, invite in all emotions, no matter what they are, as if they're envoys, guests from the beyond. Now, I don't know if they're from the beyond or not. That's above my, my, my pay grade. But what I do know is that for a happy life, we need to invite them in as guests, embrace them. Because if we don't, they overstay their welcome. As uh, Carl Jung puts it, what you resist persists. Persists. And finally, when it comes to emotion, how can we cultivate more, more joy, more love, more, more fun and more gratitude? And when we cultivate these generous and, and these pleasurable emotions, we, of course, increase our levels of overall happiness, our whole being. I love that you learned the gratitude piece from Oprah long before the research came out that suggested that gratitude is so important. Can you tell us about that and how you do say five things that you're thankful for or write five things at the end of every day? Judy, so it was 19th of September, 1999. Uh, I was watching Oprah, you know, I love Oprah. And uh, she was talking about a gratitude journal. And I said, wow, what an interesting idea. And uh, I started keeping a, a daily gratitude journal. It was only four years later in 2003 that research actually came out about the importance of gratitude. It was Mike McCulloch and um, Robert Emmons, UC, Riverside, uh, UC Davis. And um, they showed that keeping a gratitude journal makes you happier, more optimistic, more likely to achieve your goals, kinder, mm-hmm. more generous toward others and physically healthier. It actually strengthens your immune system. And I must say, all these findings didn't surprise me because I know what a difference that journal made in my, is making in my life because uh, I've persisted, you know, almost, what, what is it, 24 years almost. Wonderful. You start to look for things, right? You start to look for things that make you happier because you're like, wait, I have to write five things tonight. So... Wow, that lovely smile someone gave me and, and you know, all the wonderful things that happen, even the smallest things can be put into that journal. What do you think about this thought? And I read this and I wish I could quote it and I will quote it. However unhappy, actually I know who said it, H-I-Khan, K-H-A-N, however unhappy a man or woman may be, the minute he knows what his purpose is, what his spark is, a light comes on and suddenly everything makes sense and everything falls into place. He could be searching for this his entire life till he's 80, 90. But the minute he knows his purpose, a light comes on and he can be deeply happy. Mm. It's probably more complicated than that. But what does that quote mean? Yeah, you know, so this quote actually reminds me of another quote, which is uh, one of my uh, all-time favorites by uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who says, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And um, that. that quote was quoted by Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm-hmm. And um, we know that, you know, we are um, spiritual beings. We are creatures of purpose. We need a sense of meaning and have a reason to get up in the morning. And it could be to, you know, provide for my family. It could be to, you know, save the the blue whales. But whatever it is, it's important that we have it. And what a difference that can make. Because it really is true that when we have this deep sense of purpose, we're able to overcome difficulties, hardships, and 
challenges. Now, a sense of purpose in and of itself is not enough for happiness, but it's necessary. It's essential for happiness. It's a great springboard. It's a great starting point, right? And then you have to work with it. Let's go to Harvard for a moment. First year you taught the course, eight people. Second year, and I know you have a joke about that. Second year you taught the course, 30. Third year, almost a thousand people, 900 and some people, almost 1,000 students, making it one of the most popular courses ever in Harvard's history. And I, I kept thinking about squash because it must have been a very heady time for you. And I'm fascinated to know what it was like for you when you were getting all of this momentum all of a sudden, almost like being on a squash court and you just can't make any mistakes. You have this audience of a thousand people hanging on to your every word, watching every move you make. What was that like? Was it fun? Was it a trip? Was it scary? Did you ever sleep? I'm just curious about that, that period. Yeah. So Judy, the answer to was it this, that, or, or the other is, is yes, because it was all of the above and more. So yeah, of yeah. course it was exciting. And, you know, we talked about meaning and purpose. Of course, I felt a deep sense of meaning and purpose. And, and, and especially when, you know, the media got a hold of this strange uh, course and, and reported on that, I really felt like <laughs> I was, uh, w- was on a mission to spread happiness as I do today. At the same time, it was also very scary. It was scary for many reasons. One, because I felt a sense of responsibility for uh, all these students or people who were reading the material that I was writing. But it was also very scary because I'm an introvert. I'm shy. I I get very nervous in front of a large audience. And uh, standing in front of was actually more than a thousand. I mean, there were uh, almost a thousand students, but many of them invited their friends and parents. So, um, and, and the media was often in the class. I felt extremely oh. self-conscious and um, especially at the beginning of class, you know, soon I would get into the flow and then, you know, I would, I would forget the, you know, the audience and just be immersed in the content. But it was a, a nerve wracking period. You know, I, I look at some of my, you know, media clips from, you know, back <laughs> then, you know, almost, almost 20 years ago. And, you know, I was nervous, anxious, inexperienced. Yes. And it's not that I don't get nervous today. I, I still do. And, and I'm glad I do because it means that I care. Right. But then it was more painful than pleasurable overall. Wow. But you got better at it. And I know this because I saw an online lecture that you gave. I don't know if it was in person and online, but it was on relationships. And I was so gobsmacked by it, so much so that I recorded it to play for my husband this weekend en route to one of our favorite 12.5 hour getaways. <laughs> I'm going to play it all the way there. And it was just how important it is to cultivate your relationship with your partner. And it was so smart and so human. It blew me away. And there's something that you talked about this concept, this idea of being known rather than being validated in a relationship with your partner or a friend or a colleague that you say can transform any relationship for the better. Can you tell mm. us more? Yes. So, so Judy, this really is one of my favorite topics, of course, but also research. And this work comes from David Schnarch. David Schnarch, you know, if I have one relationship book that I would need to recommend for people in long-term relationships, huh. it would be Passionate Marriage by David Schnarch. And there he talks about how the emphasis the research on relationships and the advice given on relationship has been mostly around validation. You know, tell your partner how amazing they are, validate their their point of view. And, And yeah, that's nice and sometimes important, sometimes more important than other times. But he says it's nowhere near as important as it is to know 
and to be known within a relationship, mm -hmm. certainly in long-term relationships. You know, at the beginning of a relationship, you validate one another naturally, you're in love, you're in lust, everything's amazing. <laughs> but, right. but the honeymoon phase is over soon. And it could be after a month or it could be after three years. And then you need to work. And, you know, the analogy that I always give is, you know, imagine you find your dream job. And on the first day of your Love dream that. job, you just sit there and revel in how fortunate <laughs> and lucky you are. And they you lie are. on the couch, on the sofa. On the, you yeah, lie and, on the sofa. And, and you do nothing. <laughs> and you just continue right. to revel and, and celebrate. And not enough. You'll be fired before you know it. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Not to mention the fact that you'll be bored. Yet in relationships, we believe that we can find the right person, our, you know, prince or princess charming and live happily ever after. The problem is that this live happily ever after, the movies, they end where love begins. And what we need to do in love is work. We need to invest. We need to cultivate. How do we do that? One of the most important things to keep in mind is to get to know our partner better and to help our partner get to know us and yeah, to know our lovely. strengths and our weaknesses, you know, our fantasies and our fears. And the more we get to know our partner, the more intimate our relationship becomes. And that's how you sustain and grow passion over time. Yes. Yes, absolutely. You know, I have about 400 more questions and I'm going to hopefully get a few of them in, but I have to say, I'm going to have to invite you back on again because there's so many things I want to ask you about. We have to talk about mindfulness. You once said, I don't know if this was in a podcast or I definitely read this, try to learn mindfulness meditation from a Tibetan monk rather than some guy on, on the streets of Los Angeles. Like learn it properly. It's so important. I teach meditation. I mean, you're, you know, a huge beacon of light in this area. How is mindfulness and meditation so important and so connected to happiness and being happier? Yeah. First of all, you know, the reason why I recommend learning it from an expert, you know, be it a, be it a Tibetan monk or, uh, you know, an Indian guru is because yeah. for thousands of years, the Eastern traditions, the various Eastern traditions have been cultivating and developing techniques, whether it's in meditation or yoga or Tai Chi. And there is so much that we can learn from it. And we're only beginning to, you know, scrape literally just the tip of this wisdom. And, and the research is, is quite literally mind boggling in terms of how much yes. benefit there is. And, yes. you know, Daniel Goleman calls our age, the age of distraction when, mm. uh, you know, we, um, we <laughs> and, and much of it comes from the, um, from the, you know, the smartphone, from technology, from social yes. media. Uh, we, you know, we need that dopamine kick every, you know, 20 seconds <laughs> and, um, we become less sensitive. <laughs> we become desensitized. And what we yeah. need to yeah. do is yeah. cultivate sensitivity. Yes. Now, how yes. do we do that? How do we do that? One of the ways is through mindfulness meditation, because we become more conscious, more aware, more mindful, more sensitive to the breath going on in and out or to our physical yes. sensations, to how, yes. how we feel. And uh, when we do that, we don't need something sensational to move us, to inspire us, to, to make us happy. Because uh, just so observing the world or ourselves or other people, that in and of itself is exciting. That is when we it's become so sensitive. You know, Albert Einstein once said, 
there are only two ways in which you could live your life. One is as if nothing is a miracle. The other is as if everything is a miracle. And by cultivating mindfulness, by becoming more sensitive, we can truly, genuinely, wholly experience life as a miracle. Beautiful. I love your book, Happier No Matter What, which was published in 2021. I love that you address COVID, the new reality, and how people said, shouldn't we pause and quarantine happiness for a while? And you said unequivocally, no. Can you tell us just briefly about how the science of happiness is more relevant now than ever before. And I also loved when you talked about not focusing on all the PTSD we've been through, but instead on PTG, post-traumatic growth. Can you say more? Yes. So, um, you know, the the concept that really for me was was an eye-opener was one that was introduced by Nassim Taleb. Nassim Taleb is a professor at NYU, originally from Lebanon, and he introduced the concept of anti-fragility. Anti-fragility is um, what I've come to call resilience 2.0, because resilience 1.0 is bouncing back. Resilience 2.0 is bouncing back higher. In other words, going through trauma and experiencing growth, going through hardship, learning and flourishing as a result. Now, it turns out that many of the tips, the techniques, the uh, advice given through the science of happiness doesn't just contribute to our happiness when things are going well. So we're feeling good. We can feel better. It can also help us when we're unwell. It can also help us when we're feeling down. It can also help us when we we go through a global trauma, such as COVID or through hardships in our personal or professional lives. So all of the things that I, that I spoke about, whether it's physical exercise, whether it's spending time with our loved ones, whether it's expressing gratitude, whether it's learning new things, whether it's finding a sense of meaning and purpose, all these things significantly contribute to our ability to deal with hardship. And not only that, to learn to grow from hardship. Absolutely. I love your 12 questions and happier no matter what that contribute to your whole person well-being. What a fabulous list. I want to congratulate you on it. One of my favorites is, and guys, you have to read the book to get all of this, happier no matter what. When do I feel the most joy? What do I love to learn? When am I at my happiest? Where do I experience meaning in my life? Do you have a favorite? Because this list just made me so excited. Yeah. You know, we all have our you know, favorite spire element. The one that is uh, closest to my heart, I think that I'd say defines me most or or best is actually the, you know, the intellectual well-being. Mm. You know, what can I learn? Mm. What am I curious about? These are for me very important questions because they affect everything else that I do. You know, if I feel like I've learned something new, of course, I become a better teacher, but also become a nicer partner. Uh, when I learn uh, yeah. new things, my emotional well-being goes up and we know the, com- the connection between mind and body. So I'm also healthier there. But the nice thing about the SPIRE model is that all the elements are interconnected. So it actually doesn't really matter that much where you start. The key is to start. So you can culti- yeah. focus on cultivating your relationships and that will affect your emotion and a sense of meaning. You can start with learning and that will influence your physical health and how you feel and on and on. 
You just gave me the perfect segue talking about the intellectual. So I'd love if you could just briefly tell us about the Happiness Studies Academy, your brainchild, how it evolved and what your dreams are for its future. Yeah. So the idea for the Happiness Studies Academy actually came when I was uh, on a transatlantic flight and uh, a question came to mind. And the question was, how is it that we have a field of study for psychology, for history, for biology, for neuroscience, for geography, medicine, you name it. And there's no field of study for happiness. Yeah, there is positive psychology, Mm -hmm. but that's just the psychology of happiness. What about what philosophers had to say about happiness and theologians? And what about what literature teaches us and and economics and history and poetry and movies? Mm -hmm. Why isn't there a field or rather an interdisciplinary field of study Mm -hmm. that brings together all the, you know, the, the wisdom that, that exists in our world. And, and on that flight, I uh, committed to helping create happiness studies field, an interdisciplinary mm. field. And uh, wow. we created the Happiness Studies Academy where we offer a year-long certificate program. We have students from over 85 countries, thousands from all over the world. And it's an amazing, wonderful wow. community. And then just uh, less than a year ago, we created the world's first master's degree in happiness studies, which um, uh, just this morning, uh, I taught the last class of this semester. And I can't tell Mm. you how much joy and optimism I leave the class with every week. And it's really wonderful to have students from all over the world. It's it's 100% online. So we have students from different time zones, some at 2 a.m. for them, others middle of the day, but we're uh, united and driven by one goal. Spread happiness. I want to take this course. I'm not just saying this because I'm on the air. I really do want to take this course. So I might be calling your school. There's a story that someone told me at summer camp. You might have heard it. It really resonated with me. And it was the story of Grimaldi the clown. So this man was very unhappy. And he went to his wife and said, sing for me, dance for me, make me happy. And to no avail, it didn't work, of course. He went to his children and said, you try, sing for me, dance for me, make me happy. And as adorable as they were, it didn't work. He went to a psychiatrist who said, all I can offer you is a Band-Aid approach, but I know of someone who can help you. His name is Grimaldi, the clown, and he comes to town but once a year, and he has cured the sick and the crippled and the depressed and the unhappy and the infirm. There is no one that he can't help. And I'm so confident that if you go to the circus, you you don't even need to come back to me, but just to give you that extra boost of confidence, come next week. Please come. And we'll sit down and I know you're going to be cured if you go see Grimaldi the clown. A week goes by, the man comes back and the doctor says, did you go to the circus? And the man says, yes, I was there. And the doctor says, well, I don't understand. Why aren't you smiling? Why aren't you happy? And he says, doctor, I never will be happy. This makes me cry because I am Grimaldi the clown. Mm. That story affected my whole life. I don't know. That story made me want to do this work and to study I call it bliss, but I'm just wondering what you what your take is on that story. Wow. Yeah, it is a <laughs> it is a powerful story. You know, I, I think if I met Grimaldi the clown, um, I would I would say the following. I would say go and interact with all the people that you have made happy. Go and listen to their stories. Go and um, and be touched by the way they were touched by you. Because, um, and again, I'm, I'm thinking to research in the area of, uh, of, of meaning 
and, and purpose, there is a, potentially a sense of meaning and purpose in much of what we do. And yet we so often ignore it, don't see it. You know, think about, you know, this example, let's say, you know, you have a, a, a young child and, and you go through the bedtime routine with the child. There are different ways of going through that same bedtime routine. One way is to do it because you have to, it's your responsibility. Another way is to do it because it's important for their future. And they'll be, you know, if you read them a book, they'll be smarter and do better. And the third way of doing it is by recognizing the privilege that you have to be spending time with someone you love. The same, you know, let me share a quick story with you. You know, uh, my business partner, Angus Ridgway, his his brother-in-law is a medical doctor, specifically he's a cardiologist, specifically his expertise Mm -hmm. is uh, pacemakers where what he does is puts in pacemakers and um, every few years takes it out and changes batteries. And um, Angus was having lunch with his brother-in-law and he said to his brother, he said, finally, Evers, his name is Evers, I figured out what you do for a living. So Evers asks, what do I do for a living? To which uh, Angus responds, Evers, you change batteries. Now, Evers didn't even smile. He looked straight at Angus and said to him the following. He said, Angus, you know what? You're right. Some days I change batteries. Other days I save lives. So the question is of focus. What does Grimaldi the clown focus on? And learning to focus on the difference that we are making, we're all making some difference focusing on um, the important elements, the meaningful elements of our lives that in and of itself can make all the difference. So our experience of life is determined by external circumstances. Even more so, it's determined by subjective interpretations. Mm-hmm. What is bliss for Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar? <laughs> bliss is about uh, pursuing your passions, doing what you love, what matters to you. I have to tell you, I thank you for making the world a better place. And how can people connect with you on your website, on your social media, and of course, get your wonderful books? And there, and there are many of them, and they're all great. Well, thank you very much, Judy. They can, of course, um, go on my website, which is talbenshahar.com. And there are links there to my books, to the uh, Happiness Studies Academy. And the, and the courses to Potential Life and other projects that I'm involved in. It was such an honor. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for helping people find their bliss. I can't think of anything more important than that, anything more meaningful than that. Each week we spotlight a fabulous person like Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar who is living their bliss. So if you're an author, artist, yoga, meditation, or mindfulness expert, or really anyone who is found and is following their bliss, we'd love to hear from you. FYB at findingyourbliss.com. I'm also a life coach. If I can help you in any way, let me know. And of course, you can reach out to us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. We're going to go on a short commercial break. And when we come back more with Finding Your Bliss and a fabulous summer giveaway, courtesy of the revolutionary Smart Bottle, your reusable bottle for life. We'll be right back, back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting edge science from highly skilled doctors. 
In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And we just spent a delightful hour with happiness guru, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. What a thrill to have him on the program. I'm delighted now to tell you about a fabulous summer giveaway, courtesy of the revolutionary Smart Bottle, your reusable bottle for life. In Bliss News, we are so excited to announce our phenomenal giveaway, courtesy of Smart Bottle. Summer is here, which means it's essential to stay hydrated. And we're going to help you do just that with the Finding Your Bliss Summer Giveaway, courtesy of the revolutionary Smart Bottle, your reusable bottle for life. Proudly made in Canada, this fabulous, eco-friendly, reusable water and beverage bottle is perfect for staying hydrated in style while helping reduce the number of single-use bottles ending up in landfills and oceans. Smart Bottle has so many incredible features. It's crystal clear, lightweight, BPA-free, FDA-approved, cost-effective, dishwasher, microwave, and freezer-safe, sterilizable, and recyclable. It comes in three different sizes and has lots of gorgeous cap colors and carry rings to choose from. Plus, its unique square-shaped design means it's never rolling away and it's excellent for stacking and storing. Experience the ultimate in summer hydration with this exclusive giveaway, which includes three reusable smart bottles with mix and match colored caps and carry rings, the smart bottle water filter, and three smart bottle insulators to keep your drinks hot or cold. To enter the giveaway, all you have to do is visit at smartbottle.ca underscore and at the Bliss Minute on Instagram. And for more information about Smart Bottle, just go online and visit smartbottle.ca. I would like to thank our very wonderful guest, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, for being on the show today. Also, thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kylie, producer Naira Amani, associate producer Olivia Weatherall, audio engineer Juliana Yanuciello, senior editor Lauren Kaminsky, video editor Sierra Brown-Rodriguez, audio producer Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.